Hello and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Welcome back to The Killer Kind, or welcome if you're new here. It's the month of love, and I hope you feel loved yourself this month. If not, show yourself some love. And going with the theme of love, I have a Valentine's Day murder to talk about today. A seemingly loving husband exchanges Valentine's Day cards with his wife and kisses her goodbye, but less than two hours later, he finds her dead on their bathroom floor. But who could have done something so horrific and why? Well, let's see if we can find the answer, shall we? Without further ado, let's dive into the Valentine's Day murder of Susan Hamilton. Susan and John Hamilton were known to be head over heels for each other. When they met at a friend's birthday party in 1985, it was an instant connection. A nurse that worked with John said that Susan was beautiful, vivacious, and intelligent. She mentioned telling someone that she wished she had someone to look at her the way John looked at Susan. Now, John Hamilton was a prominent doctor in Oklahoma City, 52 years old back in 2001, where our story takes place today. He was an OBGYN. In addition to his regular practice, though, he ran an abortion clinic. John was described as mild-mannered, but was known for being very much a romantic. When he and Susan met in their late 30s, they each had two kids from their first marriages. But as I said, they instantly clicked. Two years after their first date, the two got married at a local country club. And on their wedding day, John surprised his bride-to-be with a Porsche. And throughout their 14-year marriage, he lavished her with expensive gifts and luxury trips. Now, Susan's ex-husband, Dick Horton, said he didn't think there was any question that she wore the pants. He said if there was another pair, she'd get those too. (laughs) She was definitely the more outgoing one, and he was more reserved. But it definitely seemed to work. As they got settled into their married life, Susan started working part-time at John's clinic. But as I mentioned, he also ran an abortion clinic. Being in the conservative state, the Hamiltons faced major criticism. There were protesters outside the clinic pretty much every day, as well as wanted posters posted around the town for them, and even Susan herself received threatening phone calls. Despite the enemies the couples had, though, and the potential target on their backs, many friends and family said this only seemed to bring the two closer. But things would take a tragic turn on Valentine's Day 2001. On Wednesday, February 14th, Dr. John Hamilton left pretty early in the morning to perform a surgery. After that, he went back home to get his date book he needed for the rest of the day. Shortly before 11 a.m., John arrives home and he finds his wife's naked body lying in a pool of blood on their bathroom floor. He immediately dials 911 for help. He tells the dispatcher that he needs police and an ambulance right away. He said he thinks his wife is dead. He also tells them that he is trying to perform CPR on his wife, who is non-responsive. When the paramedics arrive, it's a pretty disturbing scene. Now, The description of the state Susan's body was in is graphic, so fair warning. When first responders get to the Hamilton home, they find Susan lying on her back in a pool of her own blood. She had been strangled with two neckties. Her head had been smashed on the floor 
with enough force that some of her brain was exposed. Again, I warned you. I'm so sorry. Obviously, Susan Hamilton was pronounced dead at the scene. Oklahoma City investigators Teresa Sterling and Randy Scott arrived at the Hamilton home right around noon that day. They told Dateline that what they saw just did not suit such a wealthy neighborhood. So first and foremost, investigators needed to try to determine who could have done this and why. Pretty quickly, they knew where to start because just one week prior to the murder, John received a fax to his clinic. It was a wanted poster with his face on it saying, quote, A reward in heaven will be bestowed on anyone contributing to bringing this murderer to justice. There were also threatening phone calls, as I mentioned, and more of those wanted posters placed around the neighborhood that read, Wanted, Dead, or Alive. Then just two days before Susan's death, the abortion clinic was set on fire. Luckily, no one was there or injured at the time, but still. I mean, there was a constant harassment to both John and Susan. Investigators even learned that days before the murder, another anti-abortion group had applied for a permit to stage a protest in front of the Hamiltons' home. These people were obviously the right place to start in this investigation. However, investigator Teresa Sterling said that she personally interviewed all of these people and every avenue was checked. But ultimately, it was all a dead end. So they had to put that theory away. Now, it's routine in domestic murders that the spouse has to be looked into. That said, let's get into Dr. Hamilton's alibi. It was a pretty tight alibi, too. So, John apparently had been at an outpatient clinic at 7 a.m. to perform a surgery, which was over by about 8 a.m. Afterwards, John stopped by the hospital where he had another procedure scheduled for later that morning. At around 8.30 a.m., he is seen in the doctor's lounge by a colleague. She said he was initially on the phone with who she assumed to be Susan, and the two were having a lighthearted conversation. Then John and this colleague of his sort of started going over the next procedure that they would both be a part of. And after this interaction at the hospital, John goes back to his house, which was very close to the hospital. Randy Scott said that he would have been only at home for just a few minutes because at 9 a.m. his pager went off and it was the hospital calling him to get back for that second scheduled surgery. And by 9.30 a.m., he was scrubbing up for the operation. Everyone he interacted with that morning said that he seemed completely normal, like his usual self. There was no red flags or anything like that. Then by 10.45, he was on his way home once again, which was when he discovered Susan's lifeless body. So if he were to be the one who committed the murder, then he would have had a very small window of time to do it. Plus, it would have been in between two surgeries for that matter. How could somebody commit a murder one minute and then use a steady hand for a surgery the next? It didn't really seem to make sense, but investigators didn't want to rule him out just yet, especially when they find something odd inside John's Jaguar. They find a Valentine's Day card from Susan, which is not out of the ordinary. It's Valentine's Day, but the card read, quote, I bought my card two weeks ago, so I guess it doesn't seem as appropriate now, but I do love you. Have a good day, 
Susan. So this obviously raised some eyebrows, right? Did something happen in these last two weeks that changed things between the two? Well, according to a neighbor, something had happened between the couple. A neighbor showed up to the house that afternoon, probably just scoping things out, right? The neighbor was Susan Johnston, a close friend of Susan Hamilton. I'll try not to confuse you, but basically Susan, the neighbor, went up to one of the investigators at the scene and said that she had something she felt they needed to know. She told them that a week before Valentine's Day, Susan had confided in her about problems she was having in her marriage. The neighbor said that Susan had noticed that John was getting a lot of cell phone calls lately. And what was weird was that he wasn't answering these calls when his wife was in the room. He eventually told her that it was a patient that was down on her luck and having a hard time, and he was just trying to help her out. However, it didn't take long for Susan to find out that it wasn't actually a patient. Surprise, surprise. Turns out it was a stripper at a nightclub. Gotta love it. She demanded to see his cell phone bill, and when she got a hold of it, her worst fears became reality. There were tons of calls to and from this person. Now, Detective Randy said that when she got the bill, there were close to 100 phone calls back and forth to John. And when she confronts him about it, he said it was a patient that had been having serious psychological problems and had threatened suicide. Being the nice, upstanding guy that he is, he was simply trying to counsel her. He said it was never anything inappropriate. Susan Johnston, the neighbor, admitted that she told her friend that she didn't believe John was having an affair. She told Dateline that she told her friend Susan, he's crazy about you. You have a good marriage, and I don't think that it's true. She said by the end of that conversation, Susan had calmed down and she would think about it, basically. But either way, after this tip from the neighbor, investigators knew they needed to find out who the stripper was and also look a little closer at John because now he's not looking like this perfect husband everyone has made him out to be. So investigators take a step back and let me pause and say, all of this is still happening on this Valentine's Day. There's a lot going on. They learn about the possible marriage problems, and that starts to open their eyes to the fact that the husband could be involved, or even maybe his mistress. So, they circle back and go through John's actions from the time he placed the 911 call up until now, this afternoon of February the 14th. First things first, John claims to have performed CPR on his wife. He tells the dispatcher he was giving her CPR while on the phone with him. And when paramedics arrive, they do see John performing CPR-ish. <laughs> Firefighter David Bradbury says that he sees Mr. Hamilton with one hand on Susan's chest and the other on her stomach, and he's pushing up and down. Now, surely everyone listening to this podcast knows how to perform CPR, at least to a certain extent, right? But this is a doctor. You would think that he, of all people, should know how to perform CPR correctly. Not only was he not performing CPR the correct way, there were also no signs of the doctor giving mouth-to-mouth. If he was giving chest compressions and proper mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, then he would have had blood on his mouth or on him somewhere. Anywhere. But there didn't seem to be any noticeable blood stains 
on his person. Then there was the odd behavior after being placed in a cop car to be taken down to the station. This was initially just standard protocol since his spouse had been murdered. He needed to be cleared as a suspect first, right? We know that. So they place him in the back of the car. But before they can leave, John starts acting psychotic, basically. He starts acting strange. He is scraping his knuckles on the mesh cage separating the front of the car from the back of the car you you know what I'm talking about you might ask yourself why would he be doing this and that's a valid question so think on that just for a second and we'll come back to it so John Hamilton is taken down to the Oklahoma City Police Department his clothes are taken for evidence and he is placed in an interview room and investigators just want to watch him they want to see how he acts see if he says anything or does anything that could incriminate himself. That's pretty normal for them to do. And from what I understand, he was left in there for at least a couple hours. And throughout this time, he keeps looking at his shoulder, just looking at it, rubbing it, moving his shirt around, messing with it a lot, right? So that's how investigators that he could have had an injury or scratches or something like that. And a lot of times we know the attacker can receive injuries during an attack. So they take a look at John's body and notice scratches on his shoulder. At the same time, they were thinking back to when he was scraping his knuckles along the mesh barrier in the patrol car. Was he possibly trying to mask injuries to his hands by doing this? That's certainly what they were starting to believe. Now, during the time John was being held in that interview room, investigators are still working to gather some sort of timeline of events that day while also trying to confirm the doctor's alibi. So they're talking to co-workers, people at the hospital that saw him that day. And initially, his alibi or window of opportunity looks very small. That wasn't until they looked a little closer. So apparently, that second surgery was scheduled to start at 9 a.m., So if you remember, he had that first procedure at 7, and it lasted until about 8. He was then seen in the doctor's lounge at 8.30, but left soon after that to go back home for a few minutes. We know his pager went off at 9 a.m., asking him to come back to the hospital for that second surgery. Now, initially, investigators were thinking that he was only home for maybe a few minutes. However, when talking with some of the staff that was there for the surgery, they realized that Dr. Hamilton was late for that surgery. He didn't get there until 9.30. Some reports have said it was like 9.40, but either way, this man was not seen by anyone for close to an hour, if not a full hour. So that's plenty of time to commit a murder. And that is why, on the evening of February 14th, Valentine's Day 2001, John Hamilton was arrested for the murder of his wife, Susan. He was denied bail and held at the local county jail awaiting a trial. The case was placed into the hands of the district attorney, Wes Lane, and he made it clear that he had his work cut out for him. There was no murder weapon, no initial sign of forced entry, and basically a lack of motive. And you have the husband, who everybody and their brother vouched for. Literally everyone that knew the couple said there was no way he did this. Susan's friends, her ex-husband, 
even he said that when first hearing about John being arrested and then hearing about this supposed stripper, he was like, look, it's not John. It's got to be the stripper. I mean, that is insane to me. But even Susan's own children were also standing by their stepfather's side. So the district attorney had to get his hands on some physical evidence pointing to this guy as the killer or they were going to lose the case. Wes said that he started trying to find any dirt he could on this guy, any history of arrest, stories of violent outbursts, friends or neighbors witnessing the two arguing, and John lashing out at Susan maybe, but everyone told the same story, that they have never seen John be anything other than soft-spoken and loving towards his wife. All he had was Susan's body, in a random story about a stripper. <laughs> and speaking of that, Wes Lane was able to track down this young woman because in his mind he was thinking that maybe the two were planning something for John to leave his wife and be with her. And maybe that led to either, like the ex-husband said, the stripper or John killing Susan. But no, apparently the stripper was like, look, we've talked and stuff, sure, but we had no plans whatsoever of actually being together. So yet again, there's another dead end. West Lane really had to dig deep to find something on this guy because at this point, investigators were pretty certain he did it. But how? Where did he slip up? Surely he did somewhere. So, so while trying to find where John slipped up, he goes back to that morning. He says, we know that John was supposed to be at the hospital for a surgery at nine, but we know he didn't arrive back to the hospital at least until 930. However, Susan herself also had plans to be somewhere at 930 that day. She had a meeting with a friend who lived about 10 minutes away. And when Susan's body was found lying on the bathroom floor, she had no clothes on, as I mentioned, but her hair was also wet. So the initial theory is she was attacked as she was getting out of the shower. So let's dissect that a little bit. John had to have left the house sometime at around 920 to be back at the hospital by 930. But to me, and I assume to the investigators as well, that didn't really make sense. Unless Susan was running super late. Why would she be getting out of the shower so late? If we're assuming that John was not responsible. So say he left at 920. She would have been running super late had she had been still in the shower after he left. Are you staying with me? I hope so. <laughs> and then that means that somebody would have either had to have been hiding inside the home and John didn't see them or ran in as soon as he left. Not completely out of the realm of possibility here, but it would make more sense that the murder would have taken place earlier, like closer to nine, if she was just getting out of the shower, getting ready to go somewhere by 930. Now, personally, it takes me about an hour to get ready, maybe 30 minutes if I am just showering, drying my hair and running out the door, you know. One of the other things, though, investigators noticed was that there was a bloody rag lying near Susan's body, sort of as if somebody was trying to clean up the mess, but left it after needing to leave in a hurry. Kind of like if somebody needed to go perform a surgery or something. But what now? This is still speculation, right? 
West Lane took it a step further and hired a blood spatter expert because where there is a bloody murder, there would be blood spatter. Ross Gardner was the blood spatter expert, and he said he examined John's clothes first. He said the blood spatter appeared to tell the same story John had given initially, and they could have easily been caused by performing CPR. Great, that's good for John. However, that is the only positive thing the expert said about John. There were curious stains on the doctor's shirt, however. The blood expert thought he saw a similarity between the angular shape of blood on John's shirt and the wound created on Susan's head, meaning the theory would be that the stains on the shirt were left by the murder weapon itself as it came in contact with that piece of clothing. This, of course, only being a theory because the murder weapon was not recovered and has never been recovered from what I understand. But back to the blood experts' findings. So, first you should know that John's shoes were found next to Susan's body. He claimed they fell off when trying to revive his wife. I didn't fully understand that, but crazier things can happen, right? According to Ross Gardner, though, the shoes themselves were very suspicious for a few different reasons. But the main one being he was able to tell that the left shoe in particular was in motion at the same time blood was spattering outward, which is a pretty disturbing thought, and I apologize, but bear with me because it gets a little worse. Not only that, and probably the most damning evidence out of everything, was the blood evidence found inside Dr. Hamilton's car. On the steering wheel and driver's side seat, as well as the door sill, Crime scene investigators recovered strands of Miss Hamilton's hair and a piece of her flesh. Wow, I mean, it should be an open and shut case after that, right? So the murder trial against John Hamilton finally starts on December 1st, 2001. West Lane and the prosecution team lay everything out that they have, all of the circumstantial and physical evidence they have. The blood expert takes a stand and lays out all of his findings as well. So they lay everything out, including a detailed theory of what happened between John and Susan on that day. They theorize that Susan found out about his relationship between her husband and a stripper, and she ultimately confronts him. Then on Valentine's Day, she gives him this card, basically saying things aren't the same anymore, and John felt like he was going to lose her. Investigators believe that between surgeries, John goes home and tries to talk to Susan and she tells him that she's leaving him or something along those lines. And that's when he snaps. They say that he attacks his wife and savagely beats her to death. The prosecutor tells the jury they believe John took a shower to get any of the blood off his body. He then rinsed the cleaning solution down the drain afterwards to get rid of any blood in the drain. Apparently got dressed, wrapped the murder weapon, taking it with him in the car where the hair and skin fragments are found. And John goes back to the hospital as if nothing happened. John's attorney, Mac Martin, said they weren't too phased by this theory. He told Dateline that we had a circumstantial case and that the prosecutors in the case were putting as sinister of a spin on it as they possibly could. 
He said to the defense team, it seemed obvious from the first moments that investigators never seriously considered any suspects other than the husband. They themselves wanted to focus on the anti-abortion protesters and those threatening phone calls Susan had been receiving. However, the judge ruled that he would not allow any testimony about threats to the doctor and his wife due to the abortion clinic. So the strategy would be to pick apart both the evidence and the logic of the prosecution's case. Max said he never saw anything that indicated John felt, if I can't have you, nobody can. And that's the theory these guys were going with. And I mean, he was right about that. There was nothing that proved John wanted Susan dead or nothing that proved he was capable of an angry outburst like this. So what does the defense do? They call the soft-spoken, loving husband to the stand. So John Hamilton takes a stand in his own defense. Now let me pause and say, this is rare. I've watched enough trials. I've heard a ton of murder cases. And they all say it's not smart for the defendant to take the stand. They could easily slip up and say something incriminating, whether they did the crime or not. But I'll say, by him taking the stand, it showed they had confidence in their client. So John gets up there. He talks about their marriage and the love they had for each other. He talks about how things weren't great between them, but things weren't nearly as bad as prosecutors portrayed them to be. He said that by Valentine's Day, the two had really patched things up. He started seeing a therapist to show his commitment to making their marriage work and that Susan had even agreed to go with him. He told them that she had recently told her friend Sherry that she didn't believe John had an affair. So the affair was no longer an issue. Then John was asked about the various circumstantial and physical evidence against him. And John really had an explanation for everything. When asked why he was late for that second surgery, he explained that he had been told by the surgery nurse that the surgery before his was going to start about 30 minutes late. He said, I am notoriously known to do too much in too short of a time period, but because it was Valentine's Day, I wanted to give Susan her Valentine's Day card. He said she was in the bathroom when he got there, but she stepped out and was starting to change clothes. The two exchanged cards, kissed, and he left to go back to the hospital. When asked about the hair and blood in his car, John had a simple explanation. He said after calling 911, he realized the EMTs wouldn't be able to get their ambulance past his car out front. So he raced out to move it. He was questioned about that. Like, why are you thinking about moving your car when there could be hope of your wife still being alive? And he said he felt in his heart that he knew she was dead, but he didn't really want to give up hope. And he wanted the EMT to be able to get to her as soon as possible with no obstruction. So John really seemed to help himself by taking the stand. He went point for point. Every question he was asked, he had an answer for. And not even like in a cocky way, like I've seen defendants do before, but in a straightforward, this is what happened kind of manner. Lastly, the final witness is called to the stand in the trial, and it is the defense team's very own blood expert. Tom Bevel was a veteran of almost 30 years with the Oklahoma City PD, and he even mentored the blood expert used by the prosecution, which I thought was crazy. 
Tom told Dateline that he was hired by the defense team within a few days of the crime having taken place. So Tom takes the stand at the trial and everything he says helps the defense team. He says the bloodstains on John's shirt that the prosecutors said was left from the murder weapon could not be confirmed. Basically, they can't say that's from the murder weapon because we don't have one. We don't have one to compare it to. He explained away the blood spatter on the shoe being from Susan as she's being hit. The different angulations could have been from John simply performing CPR. It doesn't necessarily prove the spatter was from the attack itself. West Lane said when he finished, the air in the courtroom was gone. And Tom Bevel, too, went point for point. He was able to shoot down various blood evidence theories laid out by Ross Gardner, the prosecution's blood expert. But Wes Lane was able to cross-examine Tom Bevel. The prosecution is able to question Tom themselves, and they need to try to make up for the damage that Tom might have caused to their argument. So Wes just simply asks, Mr. Bevel, is there anything that either the state's experts or the Oklahoma City Police Department missed in their examination of the evidence. Tom tells Dateline that he hesitated before answering. He said he fully expected there to be an objection by the defense, but there wasn't one. So he answers. He says, yes, sir. He goes on to say that in his examination, he found additional blood that has not been talked about anywhere. Blood that was on the inside of the right cuff of John Hamilton's shirt. Tom Bevel explained that Susan's blood was on the inside of John's sleeve, which would be consistent with John Hamilton beating his wife with a blunt object, therefore driving blood up inside his shirt. Wes Lane said if you could get whiplash in a courtroom, he had it at that moment. That moment was considered the atomic bomb of the trial. The defense did try to come back to their witness, the man on their payroll, and say that, oh, this blood could have been from him doing CPR, right? But unfortunately, there was nothing more they could do. It took a little less than two hours for jurors to reach their verdict, and they found Dr. John Hamilton guilty of first-degree murder. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. John was able to speak at the sentencing hearing, and he claimed his innocence and said justice has not been served. John did hire a new attorney pretty quickly to appeal the verdict, but his appeal was denied. And for now, John Hamilton remains behind bars for the murder of his wife, Susan. Guys, I genuinely don't know what to think about this case. I mean, yes, I am 90% sure I believe he is the killer. But there's just that one, like, at 10% in the back of my mind saying that there was zero red flags about this guy. The stripper denies having any serious relationship with him. I did find an article that named this woman. And she claimed she sent him a letter telling him to stop calling her. And I could see that. But again, I just have a hard time believing that Susan would divorce John over that. 
And even if she had threatened to leave, I have a hard time believing this man, who everyone said was the nicest guy, I have a hard time believing he would snap and kill her in a fit of rage, basically. Could it happen? Yes, 100%. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around in a way. But as always, I would love to know your thoughts on today's episode. So be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram page and leave your comments there. And while you're there, be sure to drop some case suggestions if you have any. I've got a I've got a list of cases I'd like to cover this year, but I've always I always want to know what you guys want from me. So let me know. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll be back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. I hope everyone has a great Valentine's Day. Stay safe, guys. Bye.